Welcome. I'm Lori Lee Binstock, host of a Trauma Survivor Thrivers podcast. As a parent, I'm aware of the pressure of what it takes to be a mom, the pressure that we put on ourselves, and for many, the pressure we assume others are putting on us. It is a constant job, and you know, to be frank, it can be a thankless one. For stay-at-home moms, a lot of us begin to assume this as our identity. For some special needs moms, it can be more like living in constant survival mode. My guest today is Leanne Taylor, a special needs mom and the author of The Fragile Face of God. Leanne, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for the opportunity. I'm excited to share today. Well, you are a mother of five, correct? Yes, I am. Um, four of which have special needs. Uh, three of which actually three. have. Yes. Okay. Yeah. I have two sons and a daughter who were born with fragile X syndrome. Uh, yeah. So, and now they're all grown up. Yes, but- they are. Yep. <laughs> Can you share your story as a young mother? Yes, absolutely. So um, I actually started bearing children pretty early. Um, That was not really planned that way. But uh, so I had my first daughter at the age of 20. And she was uh, typically developing beautiful, bright, energetic. And then I had my second child uh, about a year later. So that was that was really quick. And he was a a boy and my son did not develop the same way that my daughter had. And so being a new mom, I really didn't know that that wasn't, uh, that that was something you needed to be alarmed about. So I just figured all children are different. Um, But as he grew the first two years without meeting certain milestones that my daughter had met, um, I just had a sense there was something wrong. So we began testing him and they had to go through all kinds of tests. Um, they test the hearing and the vision, they test everything really. And so that really happened for about a year during which time I became pregnant again. And so then I had my third child and that was also a boy. And so during that time, my first son, uh, after the first year of testing, someone, a doctor who was just right on point, had a hunch about a specific genetic disorder that he might have. And she actually recognized the facial features, the symptoms. And she said, Leanne, I'd like to order a genetic screening. So we did. And uh, that screening came back positive for Fragile X syndrome, something I had never heard of. So interesting, it turns out I was the carrier. Um, And when a woman is the carrier, she can pass it on to all of her sons. And so uh, my first son has it, then my second son was also tested. He was diagnosed positive for Fragile X. And actually during that time, my my daughter was born. So my, my fourth child was born. So it's interesting as each child was diagnosed already, the next child in line was born. Um, given that it's more typical in boys, I didn't suspect that my brand new baby daughter could have it. And so we watched her carefully. And then about nine months old, we had her tested. She wasn't meeting her milestones. Uh, she was, but very slowly and just really not in the same way that a typically developing child should be meeting those milestones. And so already here I am, a mother of four, two of them diagnosed with Fragile X, and then my daughter's test results come back and she tested positive. That was probably the lowest point for me so far. That it was devastating, honestly, um, because I had held so much hope. Here's this beautiful daughter. She's so sweet and cute and, and wonderful. 
And then to have that news was a huge blow because I, I knew, like I knew the trajectory by this time. I understood I was already involved in the Fragile X community. And so I knew basically what I could expect. And it was really daunting, actually. Um, so, so the next several years after that was just really survival. It was just survival, trying to get my bearings, um, full-time caregiver, three children with special needs, plus one typically developing daughter who, as you can imagine, sort of took the back seat during that time as I'm, you know, struggling to feed and bathe and, and watch and uh, care for all these behaviors that my children with special needs have. Uh, it, and it was very isolating, actually, Loralee. It was very isolating because I wasn't like other mothers. My children weren't like the other children. And so I felt very almost ostracized. I felt like I was weird, like I was different, like I didn't fit in. And honestly, I didn't. I didn't fit in. And I, and I couldn't relate to the conversations that other mothers were having because my life was absolutely a whole different picture. And I, I couldn't relate. I could not relate. Um, and I felt like no one could really relate to me or understand what I was going through. So, um, and that was kind of like the first chapter <laughs> survival. Um, the following chapter was about three and a half years after uh, my daughter with Fragile X was born. Um, well, I became pregnant after my husband had a vasectomy, I learned that I was pregnant. So wow. that was, um, that was so a surprise. And then my fifth child was born. It was, was a daughter and immediately we had our test. We're not going to wait any more time. We're not going to be watching for symptoms. The testing was done immediately. So two weeks old, they did the testing and the test results came back negative. Wow. Honestly, that day I cried harder than I had with all the other children and hearing their diagnosis. So that was a breakthrough day for me. And the few years after that was just, it was really blissful. Um, Day-to-day -day challenges, yes, continued, but having this amazing daughter where I could be a parent of a typically developing child and go through those normal, beautiful experiences, I, I cherished every day. I can just tell you, I appreciated the littlest milestones, maybe some things that the um, typical parent might not really take as a celebration, but my daughter can hold a cup. Oh my gosh, such a miracle. My daughter says her first word, such a miracle. My daughter looks me in the eye. She makes eye contact. Oh, such a miracle. I treasured those amazing tiny milestones. For me, they were huge. They were huge. I cherish them. Wow. And so then the years after that, as my sons grew older, behaviors became more um, pronounced, uh, more violent, self-injurious as they became stronger and even strength beyond their years, really, um, it became a survival experience and not just my survival, but helping my daughters survive, protecting my daughters. Um, and that was scary. That was actually kind of the, the many days were very scary because it was a treacherous daily experience in my household. And then as uh, my, my, all my kids grew older, we moved out of state to a, a community community where I didn't know hardly anybody, uh, but I felt like I needed a new start. I needed to get out of where I was, where everyone knew me as this you know, crippled mother with children who were impossible. And there was you know, screaming matches daily in my house. And my son is biting the flesh off his arms. And I just needed to, to get away. I needed to have a new start. And so we moved out of state um, into kind of a rural community, um, but it turned out everything just compounded. 
just compounded. Um, and honestly, the truth was that when he, people asked me if I was okay, I always said, yes, mm-hmm. it was not okay. And the daily life, it was not sustainable. It wasn't, none of it was okay. And so, um, the need to put on that face of everything's fine. I'm strong. I can handle this. These are my children. We're doing all right. We're making it work for whatever kind of a survival impulse that is, it really worked against me. It did um, because I had more than I could handle. It was just, it was not humanly possible. And, and, you know, we all suffered. Everyone in my household suffered. The children, every one of them suffered. My daughters who were not um, affected with Fragile X were very much affected by Fragile X. And uh, my oldest daughter didn't have a, a typical life with friends and playdates and having people come over the house. She didn't have that. She was ostracized. And then my youngest daughter, she ended up not developing and meeting her milestones because the rest of the household was absolute chaos. And all of my attention was focused on my sons and their their behaviors and their self-injurious behaviors and the violence and the, and the really the, the absolute chaos in the house, no pictures on the walls. Every door was locked. I couldn't leave the house. It was kind of like, um, like a, a zoo of wild, um, creatures who weren't tamed and couldn't be reasoned with and couldn't be um couldn't be trained to toilet train and couldn't be trained to speak and couldn't be trained to feed themselves and there was no way of really like order there was no order in the house and so there was no connection in the house and so there was no peace in the house and you can imagine how that accumulates over the years yeah mm-hmm. wow I mean, you're a superhero for being able to, to just survive in that environment. I know that for me, uh, you know, even I think, are people judging me when I'm yelling and, and my kids when I can't handle it? Um, it, it? It's really hard. I think we we always put too much pressure on ourselves. And like you were saying, you were all, you were telling people that you were just fine. Mm-hmm. The thing is, we're probably what we probably should be saying is, I need a little help, right? Right. Yes, or I need a lot of help. Yeah. <laughs> there's there's definitely that warning. There's all the warning signs. Really, all those years, um, crying myself to sleep, and then towards the end of this, the tumult, I was literally praying for death. I was praying for death. Please help get me sick. Please find, please help me die. I need to leave this world. None of us are helped. None of us are blessed. This is horrible for every, every one of us. We're all suffering and I can't make it work. I can't, I can't do what needs to be done. It's more than I can do. And so towards the end, I was, I was literally praying for death. How did you get through that? Um, well, So there came an experience into my life that was like an opportunity. It was an opportunity to basically live again, because at that point I wasn't living. I was, I was breathing. I was walking through the day in kind of a, an automatic pilot kind of way. I wasn't connecting with people. I was like, it was like stone cold behind the the smile, stone cold behind the eyes. I was so at such a high level of frantic. It was 24 seven frantic that I, I wasn't really living. I just wasn't living. And I was praying for death and wanting to leave this world, thinking of ways I could do it, thinking of ways I could just get in my car and leave and just never look back. Literally, that's where I was. And an opportunity came into my life that I wasn't looking for and I wasn't asking for. Um, and it allowed me to 
to breathe again. It allowed me to be, um, to have hope and to look ahead and, and to see possibly there was a way that I could be happy again. Possibly there was a way that this horrible situation could be healed. And then there came a moment when I knew and my husband knew that we'd come to the end. And we, we took a step that was the most horrifying thing I've ever done in my life. Really, I think it's the most horrifying thing any parent could do. And we abandoned our sons at a care facility. And we had a, actually a team, a very small team of um, professionals, uh, teachers who sort of um, gave us some special kind of encouragement and um, insight into options. And so we abandoned our sons at a care facility and immediately what happened was where there had been no help, where there had been no resources, help stepped in resources were made available when they, when we were in crisis and they saw we were in crisis. And so basically the state stepped in and uh, came to our aid and offered resources. And we were able to um, allow our sons to be put into state custody, which allowed, um, which allowed state resources to be applied, which allowed professional parents to step in, which allowed all kinds of therapies, which allowed resources and teams of people who we had never had before, but teams of people to allow my sons to have all the care that they needed, the resources they needed that we could not provide them. We had to meet in a court in front of a judge. Talk about a mother's heart wrenching. You're there faced with the reality. I am no longer able to care for my own children. Everything I could do to give them and care for them and, and meet their needs, it was not enough. And being there that day in front of the judge and having to face the judge and the judge said, are you aware of what's happening? Just want to make sure this is what he said. He told us, which I thank him to this day. I thank him for these words. He said, this is not your fault. You did all you could. You did all you could. And now we're going to help your sons. <laughs> Can't even describe to you fully the way that felt to hear and what I was going through in that moment and, and the picture, right? The picture of what would the future look like for my kids? And so, um, so that day, every, it was honestly very clean and very hopeful and um, in a way it was, it was great closure. And so then my sons were placed in two professional homes, two separate homes with two sets of professional parents and wonderful people whom they are with still today. Wow. Still today. And that was in 2003. And so that's been 18 years still today. They're with these wonderful professional parents um, and they have a home that is full of love and care and order and resources and teams of people we meet every month. See, now I'm the legal guardian for both my sons, because once they turned 18, that was the next step. So I'm their legal guardian and I attend all those meetings and I'm fully involved and we meet and we visit and I'm working in tandem with those professional parents. But you know, that's a very different relationship yeah. and where I can't pick up the phone and call my sons because they're nonverbal and I can't shoot off an email to my sons. They're cognitively functioning about the age of a two-year-old. And so the relationship has to have certain um, steps 
mm-hmm. that I need to take to make those connections, to visit them and to oversee kind of everything that's happening for their care. So even still to this day, I know that what I did was best for them. And I know that that was, that was a decision made of love to help them and serve them in ways that I could not, as best I tried, I could not. And so it's kind of one of those um, unforeseen, unexpected, kind of surreal scenarios where you have to, um, you have to show up in the way that the moment demands. And that is what the moment demanded. This was something you weren't actually seeking out, correct? This is something Mm -hmm. that just came to you. Mm -hmm. It was like the universe knew you needed, this was time. Exactly. Yeah, because I can tell you that had that not happened, I would have taken my own life. That's where I was going. And I don't even want to say that out loud, but I have to be realistic. That's exactly what would have happened. And then what? See, the situation would have been far worse. I mean, I feel like that's so brave of you to say that because I feel like there are mothers and mothers who probably don't have children with special needs who feel that way. I know I felt that way, mostly for my own trauma that I was that I was holding, you know, I, we, we've spoken before, I'm a childhood sexual abuse survivor. And I know the behaviors that I adapted, the yelling, the, you know, just being in survival mode constantly, it affected my children. I could see how it was affecting them. And it was just tearing me apart. So I feel I, I feel like a lot, a lot of mothers can can completely understand where you're coming from. Mm-hmm. Oh, gosh. And you wrote this book, The Fragile Face of God. What made you want to write it? <laughs> and when did you write it? Um, right. How old were your children? Mm-hmm. So I wrote it over a period of five years. Um, and I didn't start the process of writing it until after years after my sons were placed. And there was that really, it took me years of healing. I, I had post-traumatic stress disorder, seriously. And it, it, the littlest thing would, would trigger me and I would just burst out crying. I couldn't handle being in the vicinity where I lived in that home where everything melted down. So I had to move away. It was just... PTSD for years afterwards. So there was a really deep process of healing that needed to happen. So about the year 20, uh, 2007, I felt I needed to look at the story. I needed to go through all my journal entries. It was 700 pages of journal entries because I kept a journal all those years. And I felt, I felt the story needed to be told that I needed to tell it, that I needed to write it for myself. And then also for all the mothers who, who feel they are alone and no one understands because, oh, how I wish I had had that book all those years. Oh, how I wish there had been someone to, who would have written a book that I could have read all those years. I was in survival mode and I wanted to die. And so I wrote that book for me and for them and not just for mothers of children with special needs, but for people who feel they're barely surviving mm-hmm. and no one in the world understands them. That is who I wrote that book for. And you know what? There are things shared in that book. They're not pretty because you know what? Sometimes life is not pretty. Life <laughs> is scary. And sometimes, yeah. sometimes we, we almost don't survive. And that needed to be said out loud because it's not okay that we suffer alone. At the end of the day, we all need each other. And so writing that book, it was like my final healing. 
I felt like I had so much spiritual help when I was writing that book to allow me the insight to understand myself and understand what it, what I had gone through. Um, the reason for my actions, the reason for my suffering, what had been our experience, why we had been given this to experience and, and why we did not seek help sooner. And so all of this came through in the writing of that book and the reading of those 700 pages of journal entries. And so really it was a labor of love because when the book was done and I presented it to the world, I really felt like I was naked in front of the world. Here is me naked exposed to the world. But I know I knew that I needed to share that and that people needed to hear it. I think people do need to hear it because people trying to put a face on themselves, this facade of being strong. And like you were saying, it does not benefit us. It only makes things more difficult. It's when you show your vulnerability and you get the help that you need is when you're able to start working through it and healing. You talked about there was a point point where you said where everything collapsed and this is where the state stepped in. You wrote something for me for Authentic Insider um, magazine about when your marriage fell apart. Mm-hmm. Was that after, before or after um, the state stepped in? Mm-hmm. So that was after, mm-hmm. but honestly, before it was dead for years because both of us were in survival mode and because I was managing the household and my husband at the time, his way of coping was to escape. And so he was absolutely like closed off, shut off, but he was living among us, but he was not among us. Mm -hmm. And so I felt like for years, honestly, before that final moment of breakdown that I was solo, I was just solo and the marriage was not, it couldn't breathe. And actually there's a very high percentage rate. I believe it's 75% of marriages um, for parents of children with disabilities don't last. When I talked about having um, an introduction and an invitation, something that was introduced into my life prior to that final meltdown, this was um, a relationship with with somebody else, someone who I wasn't looking, I wasn't seeking, I wasn't asking, but I know that was intervention because it literally saved my life. And so after, after, um, when my husband and I knew that we needed a cry for help, that we needed to bring people in and that we needed to um, show the state, we can't do this anymore. And so that's when we um, dropped our sons off in a care facility and the state stepped in and all of this really is crazy how fast it happened. It was, I think within a month, my sons were placed in professional care. The whole court system had, had happened. It was just that too, I, I feel was divine intervention because it happened so fast. My sons were placed. Um, I moved out. My husband moved out. We were in two separate households, but the children were, the daughters were going back and forth. Um, and then that's when I picked up this relationship again, immediately divorced my husband immediately and remarried. It was literally within days. The divorce was final. And five days later, I was married, remarried. That again was, was a divine intervention. So actually my mother died when I was eight years old and through the years, I felt her um, guidance here and there and her presence here and there. And after I divorced and after all this had happened, my mother came to me. She said, Leanne, that was, that was my intervention. I had to save your life. Mm. And she said, all of the events that occurred during that time, that was me, Leanne, because you would have taken your life if I had not intervened. 
And so it, there's so much more to that story, but I can tell you that the wildest, most unimaginable series of events just behind the scenes and out in the open, both unimaginable series of events that truly saved us all. How old were your sons when they went into um, professional care? Professional care. Yeah. So my oldest son, Quinn, was 12 and Shale was just about 10. Mm-hmm. I think he was nine and a half, just about 10. Um, so they were, they were, that's young. That's very young. That what it was why it was so heart-wrenching. Uh, I guess you just feel like, well, my parent, my parenting isn't done yet. My children, they're just, they can't fend for themselves. They're so little. I won't be there to tuck them in at night. I won't be there when they wake up in the morning. That will no longer be me. That was the hardest part about it. That was the harder than raising them was giving them up. Yeah, I can, I can imagine that. Mm-hmm. How, what, how did you cope with that? A lot of tears, a lot of trauma, honestly, it, it was very heart-wrenching. Who could be there to counsel me? Who could be there to comfort me? Who, who knew what I was going through? Who could even fathom what I was going through? So honestly, there wasn't anybody that I will tell you, honestly, there wasn't anyone who was there saying, Leanne, I know what that's like, Leanne. I feel what you're feeling, Leanne. It's going to be okay. There wasn't, there was no one there. So honestly, it was extremely difficult. And and it was a year later, a year almost to the day when my mother's spirit visited me, a year to the day of when my sons had been placed. And she came and said, Leanne, here is exactly the series of events that happened. And this is what you learned from all of these events. And this is why that happened. She told me things I had no idea, no idea. She helped me. That was how my healing really began was a year later, my mother's visit. That's when it started. That is touching. And it's, it's, it's what you needed. I, I, mm-hmm. I, I'm amazed that your life took you to the extremes. And right when you really needed the help, it was there. Something came in. It was divine intervention that just Mm -hmm. came in and really helped you. And then your mother coming in to help you, because I can only assume that you are still devastated by everything. Yes. PTSD. Yep. It was every day was a struggle. Absolutely. And then um, visiting with my sons and then having to say goodbye. (laughs) And then going back to my house for that first year, just, yes, everything was um, unspeakably difficult and painful. Absolutely. And so that hour, that moment when my mother came and it was three hours and so much she shared with me that just brought everything back home again. I was able to reconcile having to give up my sons. I was able to understand our suffering. I was able to understand my sons and who they were and why they came to me. I was able to understand how now we would all be better off. All of these things I I was grappling with. And that instance, that visit from my mother helped everything fall into place and the healing began. Wow, that is incredible because you're right. It's when you understand the trauma that you've gone through, when you really understand it, that's when you're able to heal. It's true. For so many people, it takes forever to be able to get to that point. Um, You, you talked about, so fragile X, I have actually have never heard of this. Did you find a support group? 
Um, well, all through the years, there was kind of this um, contact, but it always felt so far away. Like I, 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 even among that community of Fragile X, I still felt like my children were more difficult that my, I had three and most families with Fragile X children do not have three. Mm-hmm. And, and the, the level of extreme behaviors, the challenges that my sons, the, the violent behaviors and the self-injurious, I felt still ostracized. I felt like, um, outside of that circle, even still. So afterwards, um, I, and especially as I was writing my book, I did kind of reconnect with that community. Um, but I never felt like, um, I'm the mother of uh, children with fragile X. I'm the fragile X mom. I never felt identified with that. It never felt like that's who I see myself as. And, And the reason why I wrote the book for everyone is because I know that everyone suffers and there comes a moment in everyone's life, no matter their circumstance, when they feel completely alone and they don't know how to make that next step. They don't know how to make it through the night. I know that people get to that point. And so I've come actually into a, um, an opportunity. And I want to say this is like a self, um, a self birthing opportunity where I decided I wanted to help people. I wanted to mentor people. I wanted to help people who didn't have someone that they could turn to. I wanted to be that, that woman. And so in the beginning, I began mentoring uh, mothers of children with special needs. And then I began branching out and mentoring people who had disabilities of their own or people who had illnesses, chronic illnesses. And then people began finding me without, it was only word of mouth. I didn't advertise. I didn't put it out there. People began finding me dozens and dozens and dozens of people over years and years began finding me. And soon I found myself being a resource and a a source of inspiration, guidance, clarity, and understanding for people who desperately needed it. And and I'm assuming this is a, a, a small community, um, a rare genetic disorder. Yes. So fragile X, um, you'd be surprised. So everyone has heard of Down syndrome, mm-hmm. right? So fragile X is actually right on par with Down syndrome. Um, it's the second most common genetically inherited mm-hmm. disorder, right? It's very common. Um, so it's estimated one in 7,000 boys will have fragile X one in 11,000 girls, boys, um, have it, have it more often than girls do. Um, but so yeah, when I heard, when I learned about fragile X, I couldn't believe how common it was actually, it just hasn't had the press that down syndrome has had. So everyone knows autism, right? Everyone knows down syndrome, hardly anyone's heard of fragile X yet. It is so common. In addition to it being just fragile X, the genetic inheritance, there are many other symptoms that are very typical with children with fragile X. So autism, both my sons have autism, Tourette syndrome. Okay. Um, there are physical um, abnormalities and challenges that come with some children with fragile X. And so there's a whole um, range of symptoms. So it's that they're actually every bit as identifiably um, physical as a child with Down syndrome, those same physical features, but fragile X, they have different physical features, but they're very easily identifiable. Um, so it really does help to kind of spread the word and to let people know, because the first thing I did when I found out I was the genetic carrier, I reached out to an individual in my family who could potentially also be a carrier. And I let her know this is what it is. And no one in my family had heard of it all the generations back. No one, no one had known of it, but I know somewhere it had been there. It had to have been. You did the work. You did the work. I did the work. Yes. And even my daughter's who were born without fragile, we had them tested. So my oldest daughter was tested. My youngest daughter was both tested. 
and they do not carry the gene. They will not even pass it on. They're not a carrier. Oh, wow. Mm-hmm. And so we had to know everyone we had to know. Wow. What have you learned from raising five children as a special needs mom? Mm-hmm. So, okay. Expect the unexpected, <laughs> be available, be available and never, ever, um, marry yourself to the standard, typical, trajectories that everyone else uh, sees as being normal. There's nothing normal. There's no such thing as normal. Mm -hmm. So don't feel committed or um, uh, in captivity to those things that are considered normal. Know that everything that happens in life is going to throw you in an unexpected direction. And so just expect that, (laughs) expect the unexpected. The other thing is we must be flexible. We must be adaptive. We must be adaptive. And I wish that I had known then what I know now, I've really learned so much over the years, uh, mentoring people, but I wish that I had known back then to just learn to be a little flexible. And you know what, when someone offers help, please say yes, please say yes to the help. It's okay. If you're not feeling okay, it's okay. If you can't do it alone, it's okay. And you know what I've learned a lot of people are faking it. A lot of people are putting on that face, mm-hmm. that veneer and, and they're crying themselves to sleep at night. We must be authentic with each other. We must, because if we're not, we're all suffering needlessly. We must look out into the world and we must be a, an individual of hope and perspective and service because everyone needs that service. Everyone does. Yeah. I know. I, I, for me, I remember when people would say, how are you doing? And even if I wasn't doing well, I mean, even I would, I would kind of jokingly say not well. So it wasn't like I was really calling out for help, but I, I guess, I guess in some ways I was, and I, I have to say there are times when I felt like I was failing constantly. And if I asked for help, that it would just be worse for me. And I was completely wrong. It Mm. was, I was completely wrong because, you know, my husband stepped in and was just like, you need to go into treatment. And, you know, it, it really does take a village to raise children. Yeah. So, and, and for you, I feel like I, I hate the idea that you you you, you felt ostracized yeah. by other moms. I, I I mean, I can't imagine what that was like for you to feel like you were alone. Very alienating. And then, of course, it, it makes you look at yourself and ask, there must be something wrong with me, right? Why can't I do this? Why can't I raise my own children? Why can't I... Why can't I be the mother that they need? Why, why can't I manage this household? And so uh, other moms are doing it. Other people are doing it. Look how composed they are. Look how composed their children are. At the end of the day, I felt like a failure, just like you had just said, um, I, that everything indicated fail, failure. Everything in my environment indicated chaos and horror and literally suffering mm-hmm. in my household, all of us. And that's not me. I'm a person of excellence. Always have been, always have been. I'm the person, I'm the leader. I'm out in the front. I'm the one, I'm the first one through the gate. This was not me. You may be breathing and walking, but I wasn't living. Mm -hmm. I felt like I was dead already. 
in, in the land of the living. It was just, and that's where I was. So, um, yeah, it, you know, I once had a woman approach me. Uh, I didn't know her. This is when we moved to the new area. And this woman approached me and said, Oh, are you the mother of the retarded children? Oh, yeah. Your reaction to this. Right. Um, shocking. Uh, what, what to even say to that? Um, uh, yes, I, I have children with disabilities. And in that moment, just an absolute reaffirmation to me that's who I am to everyone. That's who I am. And that's why people don't call me to, that's why people don't friend me. People don't hang out with people. Don't want to get to know me. I'm just different. I'm so different. They can't relate to me. They keep their distance. No one sees me. I'm invisible. That's, that's what I am. And so, um, that was really, really hard. Someone once told me your breakdowns become your breakthrough. Right. Seems like <laughs> it's true. No, before the breakthrough comes the breakdown. I do want to share something so extraordinary, and this is not in the book. I'm actually um, writing a second book to tell this story. But <clears throat> so after seven years, the first seven years that my sons were in placement, 700 miles apart, that's where we live, 700 miles apart, every single day for seven years, every single day in my prayers, praying daily, um, sending a message to my son. So inside the prayer, I would say, please send this message to Quinn. And then I would speak to Quinn. I would say, Quinn, I love you. I miss you so much. Um, I hope you're doing okay. And, and please be good for your caregiver. And I'm so sorry we're not together. And then please send this message to Shale. That's my younger son, Shale. I love you so much. I'm so grateful to be your mother. And, you know, dot, dot, dot for seven years, I did this for seven years on my knees, prayers, uh, tears streaming down my face, seven years. Then one day, uh, December, 2009, December, 2009, I'm giving a message, a message to Quinn. And this is what I'm saying, Quinn, I love you so, so much. I miss you. I'm so sorry that you're suffering. I just want you to be happy. And then a voice answered back and the voice said, I didn't come here to be happy. I came here to grow and to evolve. If you knew, if you had any idea the glory that awaits you, you would do everything you could to evolve, but you're getting there. You are. So Lorley, that moment changed my life. That was my son, Quinn. He was 18 at the time. And that was the first communication he and I had ever had. From that moment, from that moment, I began communicating with Quinn and Shale through the veil in a kind of telepathy, spiritual telepathy. From that day and since that day, I have been communicating with both of them, conversational. That also was a huge shift in my healing because then they could show me who they are without their disability. And they did. They wow. did. So this is your relationship with your child, your sons. Mm -hmm. How is your relationship with your other children? Mm -hmm. Do they My tell daughters. you, do they talk about what it was like growing up? And I'm assuming that you could only grow from there. Like, right. Well, right. So my oldest daughter, Jade, um, and she was the old, the third parent in the house, the oldest of the children who ended up just really being a parent early on, um, helping to raise my sons and my younger daughters. And so after the fallout um, and the rebuild, 
she uh, went through a period of healing of her own that was really very difficult and very tumultuous, as actually happens quite frequently with the siblings of individuals with disabilities. And so that was a, a kind of a long journey um, and through high school, because she went into high school right after that. And um, but then eventually came back around to sort of a reconciliation where she began having friends she didn't really have before. And she began having a kind of a normal life that she didn't have before. And she began doing typical things that teenagers do that she never had before. And so she now is um, 31 and the most amazing, valiant, strong, poised, wise, just a chariot of a woman, as you can imagine, she would be Mm -hmm. knowing things most people will never experience in their life. And she is that she has that charge about her. And so we're very close. Honestly, it's kind of more of a sister relationship is how it's always felt with Jade because she had to mature so quickly. And because she and I were just like this team all through the years, this team, um, she's such a blessed woman in my life. And I just, I, I absolutely adore her. And then my two younger daughters, right? So faith is uh, my daughter with fragile X and she was able to learn to read and write and she's verbal and she is, um, she functions at the level of maybe a 12 year old, and she's, um, she's 25 now. So actually that's huge. It's wonderful that she can go out in public and she can converse with people and hold her own. Um, so she will probably always live at home and have sort of that help, you know, with caregiving that help. And then my youngest daughter, Psalm, um, what an <laughs> amazing blessing. I named her Psalm for the sacred song that she is in my life. And, um, she's beautiful, typically developing. She's 22. Now she has a job. She's an artist. She has a social circle. And because she was so young, when everything fell out, I believe she was three when the marriage broke and my sons were placed. And so she, now and has told me, I don't remember those years. I don't remember the chaos. I don't remember the the scary moments in the household. She doesn't remember them. And honestly, that is merciful. That is merciful that she doesn't remember because it was very traumatizing. And so she's been over the years visiting her brothers. So she knows them, but she doesn't have the trauma based um, memories or sensations, even sometimes Jade still will have a twinge of that PTSD. Um, she's very protective of her siblings and that's still the, the parent aspect comes in that no, no girl should ever have to feel about her siblings. No, no sibling should ever have to feel to parent their other siblings, but because of the situation, that's kind of how it happened for her. And so she's still that like, you know, fierce motherly protective of her siblings. Um, and that still comes through sometimes, but you know what, Uh, considering what we've all been through, it's a miracle. It's a miracle. The peace that we have, it's a miracle, the relationships, it honestly is Nirvana. I'm, I'm not joking. Me, my daughters in the same household, Nirvana. It is bliss. It is bliss. And my sons, when I see them, it's joyful, not terrorizing, not traumatizing, not painful, not scary, joyful, joyful. And the milestones that my sons have been able to meet with a professional parent and teams of help, what I could not do for them, that also is a miracle toilet training, helping them learn to feed themselves, helping them learn how to put their own clothes on. Just even those things is huge for them. Wow. Yeah. You, 
you see the growth. You, yes. I, I, I hear the growth um, and the success of what you've been through. And, you know, all you can ask for is growth, the post-traumatic growth. There's so much to learn there. And yes, it really, it really shapes who you are as a person in this, 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 the strength and the ability to kind of handle a lot of life's, you know, difficulties, because like you said, life is not perfect. There's a lot of adversity that we face and, Mm -hmm. you know, that's just, I'm assuming for Jade, just to walk in a park when she's just <laughs> living her life. Oh yeah. She's potent. She can handle anything. She, she's a powerhouse. Absolutely. Um, I feel the same way. I feel like what I've been through, it, it's just kind of this, um, feeling of triumph. I want to call it, it just feels yes. like triumph and the strength that comes and the resolve, because you know what, all the years that I was like still kind of healing and traumatized, I didn't feel strong. I felt weak. I felt like what happened made me weaker. But at, then after coming through the final stages of healing with my mother's spirit, helping me and writing the book and then mentoring people and being able to be a source of help to others, all of that in, in that straight away coming through that healing experience, I now feel like throw it, whatever you have at me, throw it at me. I, I can handle anything. Nothing will break me. Nothing can break me. Why? Because I know what it's all about. Why? Because I know who I am. Why? I know the bigger picture. And that is what Quinn and Shale have showed me through their spirits. I know the bigger picture and see when you understand, understanding, when you have that sneak peek, when you have that backstory and you know, the bigger picture, all things fall into perfect perspective and nothing intimidates you. That's all there is to it. Wow. What blessings they are. Mm -hmm. Is there anything you'd like to add? I do want to say um, on behalf of Quinn and Shale to the world and on behalf of those who have no voice, because I've also since then communicated with other um, individuals who don't have a voice in this world. But I want to say on behalf of them and others who are like them, that they are here to teach us compassion. People who are born with disabilities and who walk among us, who seem tattered and frail, are here to teach us compassion. And I want you to know something. Everyone who's listening, they are not broken. Their spirits are not frail. They are the highest among us. They are the most advanced beings among us. And they come here in a tattered form to teach us compassion and to grow, to grow, to grow to exponential levels beyond what we're going to grow. You and I, they grow beyond those levels because of the form that they chose to present in this world. And so when you see someone with a very pronounced special need, give them honor for the might and the strength of their will to come here and embody that, and then show some compassion toward them, because that is what they are here to help you learn, you and me, because at the end of the day, Laura Lee, we all who are not disabled are the ones with special needs. Thank you so much, Leanne. It's been a blessing to have you on my podcast. Thank you so much. Thank you. And you're very welcome. I'm happy to share. Thank you. 
That was Leanne Taylor, author of The Fragile Face of God. To learn more about Leanne, visit my website at tstpodcast.com. That's the letter A, tstpodcast.com. There you can find a link to purchase her book. You can also find my social media platforms at the top of my homepage. Leanne has also contributed to September's issue of Authentic Insider, which you can find at my website. And if you haven't already, please subscribe to my email list to get Authentic Insider magazine in your inbox monthly. You've been listening to a trauma survivor thrivers podcast thank you so much for being a part of the conversation i'm lori Lee binstock take care mm-hmm.